Chapter Four of the Daughter of a Magnate by Frank Spearman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Four, as the Dispatcher Saw. If you can recollect the blizzard that Roscoe Conkling went down in one March day in the streets of New York, it will give you the date. Possibly call to your mind the storm. I had the river division then, and we got through the whole winter without a single tie-up of consequences until March. The morning was still as June. When the sky went heavy at noon, it looked more like a spring shower than a snowstorm. Only I noticed over at the government building there were flying a black flag splashed with a red center. I'd not seen it before for years. And I asked for plows on every train out after two o'clock. Even then, there was no wickedness abroad. It was coming fairly heavy in big flakes, but lying quiet as apple blossoms. Toward four o'clock, I left the office for the roundhouse and got just about halfway across the yard when the wind veered like a scared semaphore. I'd left the depot in a snowstorm. I reached the roundhouse in a blizzard. There was no time to wait to get back to the Keys. I telephoned orders over from the house, and the boys burned the wires east and west with warnings. When the wind went into the north that day at four o'clock, it was murder pure and simple, with the snow sweeping the flat like a shroud and the thermometer waterlogged at zero. All night it blew with never a minute's let up. By ten o'clock, half-hour wires were down. Trains were failing all over the division, and before midnight, every plow on the line was bucking snow, and the snow was coming harder. We'd given up all idea of moving freight and were centering everything on the passenger trains when a message came from Beverly that the fast mail was off track in the cut below the hill, and I ordered out the wrecking gang and a plow battery for the rundown. It was a fearful night to make up a train in a hurry, as much as a man's life was worth to work even slow in the yard a night like that. But what limit is set to a switchman's courage I've never known, because I've never known one to balk at a yardmaster's order. I went to work clearing the line and forgot all about everything outside the train sheet till a car tink came running in with a word that a man was hurt in the yard. Some men got used to it, I never do. As much as I've seen of railroad life, the word that a man's hurt always hits me in the same place. Slipping into an ulster, I pulled a storm cap over my ears and hurried downstairs, buttoning my coat. The arc lights, blinded in the storms, swung wild across the long yard, and the wind sung with a scream through the telegraph wires. Stumbling ahead, the big car tink facing the storm led me to where... Between the red and green lamps, a dozen men hovered close to the gangway of a switch engine. The man hurt lay under the forward truck of the tender. They had just got the wrecking train made up, and this man, running forward after setting a switch, had flipped the tender of the backing engine and slipped from the footboard. When I bent over him, I saw he was against it. He knew it, too, for the minute they shut off and got to him... He kept perfectly still, asking only for a priest. 
I tried every way I could to get him free from the wheels. Two of us crawled under the tender to try to figure it out, but he lay so jammed between the front wheel and the hind one, and tender trucks are so small and the wheels so close together that to save our lives we could neither pull ahead nor back the engine without further mutilating him. As I talked to him, I took his hand and tried to explain that to free him we should have to jack up the truck. He heard, he understood, but his eyes, glittering like the eyes of a wounded animal with shock, wandered uneasily while I spoke, and when I had done, he closed them to grapple with the pain. Presently a hand touched my shoulder. The priest had come, and throwing open his coat, knelt beside us. He was a spare old man, none too good a subject himself, I thought, for much exposure like that, but he did not seem to mind. He dropped on his knees and with both hands in the snow put his head in between the wheel close to the man's face. What they said to each other lasted only a moment, and all the while the boys were keying like madmen at the jacks to ease the wheel that had crushed the switchman's thigh. When they got the truck partly free, they lifted the injured man back a little, where we could all see his face. They were ready to do more, but the priest, wiping the water and snow from the failing man's lips and forehead, put up his fingers to check them. The wind, howling around the freight cars, strung about us, sucked the guarded lantern flames up into blue and green flickers in the globes. They lighted the priest's face as he took off his hat and laid it beside him, and lighted the switchman's eyes looking steadily up from the rail. The snow curling and eddying across the little blaze of lamps whitened everything alike, tender and wheel and rail, the jack screws, the bars, and the shoulders and caps of the men. The priest bent forward again and touched the lips and the forehead of the switchman with his thumb. Then, straightening on his knees, he paused a moment. His eyes lifted up, raised his hand, and slowly signing through the blinding flakes the form of the cross gave him the sacrament of the dying. I've forgotten the man's name. I've never seen the old priest before or since. But sometime a painter will turn to the railroad life. When he does, I may see from his hand such a picture as I saw at that moment. The night, the storm, the scant hair of the priest blown in the gale, the men barred about him, the hush of the death moment, the wrinkled hand raised in the last benediction. End of chapter Four.